This is Sportsnet Today, and you're on air with Israel Fair and Alex Blair. Now here are your hosts, Israel and Alex. Sportsnet Today is on air with Israel Fair and Alex Blair. Sportsnet 650. Mike McLeod running the show for Mission Control. It is a Saturday afternoon in uh, Vancouver. The smoke, Alex, has finally dissipated to a certain extent. Uh, it's been uh, a pretty wild week uh, just locally in, in, a, in a pretty crazy year. Uh, but we've got a ton of sports to get to today. So we're going we're gonna to dive right into that. Obviously, big day today for the station and for the NHL. The Stanley Cup final game one goes tonight uh, between the Tampa Bay Lightning, which is not entirely surprising. And the Dallas Stars, who are a bit of a surprise, uh, though they were they were a top four team during the pre-pause regular season, and have gotten to the Cup final on the back of good goaltending, some strong defensive play, and um, some surprise performances. They've got some good young players that people are going to get to know, I think, in this series. But uh, let's start with just kind of hitting on some of the headlines of the week, Alex, and let's start in Vancouver uh, with Brock Besser. Uh, a guy who, who was addressing trade rumors again this week. And it's not like they were new by any means. I think these are kind of recycled rumors from what we had heard prior to the NHL's return to play. The Besser was a guy that might be in some in a mix of, of, of trade rumors that the Canucks have to make some pretty significant financial decisions in the next couple of years. Besser is a guy that, based on his stats, has proven that he should be played, uh, paid like a like a top end player. But the, were the Canucks going to get enough out of him? Did they see enough out of him in the playoffs? He had eleven points, I think, in seventeen playoff games. So that was that was pretty good. But he hasn't been the goal scorer the people expected him to be uh, based on his rookie season. So uh, where do you stand on on the Besser stuff and and him having to address those rumors again this week? Well, I th- I think he's going to be. Um he's going to be the target of a lot of these conversations because Quinn Hughes is a no move. Elias Pettersson is a no move. And when you start to look at young assets that the Canucks have, Brock is, is probably going to be the one that, you know, will be dangled. He's going to be the attractive commodity for another team. Um, We've talked about it in weeks past. We had, we had Harmon dial on from the athletic last week that talked about, you know, how he, he didn't think now was the time for Besser, uh, and I don't either. I think the I think the biggest question will be next year with whether Brock they decide Brock is going to be a seven million dollar player on this roster with the flat cap and with the way his bridge deal was signed, his salary next season will be seven million, which will mean his qualifying offer will need to be seven million, and that's going to be a challenge. Yeah, that's that's the big question. But I, I think and both you and I have dealt with Brock Besser. Uh, you were a big part in producing that feature that Hockey Night in Canada Sportsnet ran a couple of years ago, building Brock. Uh, he is a guy that has handled this stuff pretty well. Uh, he's been in the limelight in Vancouver since his rookie season. And though he has been surpassed on the depth chart by Elias Pettersson and Quinn Hughes, I still th- see a player like him as being a hugely important invaluable NHL player. Now, is that necessarily going to be the right fit in Vancouver in the long term? That's where the question lies. But for me, a guy like him who in a healthy season 
which we haven't seen completely yet, which is part of the red flags and the question marks, I suppose. But if, if you've got a player that has the ability to score 30 goals and have 35 assists in a healthy season and play on one of the best lines in the league, that's a hugely valuable player. And it comes down to the players that are being linked to Besser, the big name that's out there. And though there have been varying uh, degrees of the validity of the, the Matt Dumba reports, uh, that's a guy who is a, is a sexy name in, in hockey terms, I think, because he's supposed to be a big, strong defenseman. He can play a lot of minutes. But to me, a player like him is a little bit overvalued. A player like Bester is a little bit undervalued. And we'll probably keep touching on some of this throughout the show. Uh, the other kind of rumor uh, that percolated yesterday uh, came a bit out of Calgary. Jacob Markstrom uh, is an unrestricted free agent. He is, by all accounts, the Canucks' top priority to keep. But there's going to be a market for goaltenders. And there's going to be some teams. And you, you look at the teams that made the cup final you look how the 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 cup the the playoffs played out in the western conference a team like colorado yes they had a bunch of injuries i think that when philip grubauer is healthy that they feel pretty good about their goaltending situation but all of a sudden uh, a playoff run ends uh, and not it wasn't solely on colorado's goaltending they had other injuries throughout that lineup but there there are a lot of teams asking themselves questions about their goaltending situation. Uh, you look at a team, and not that Washington Capitals would be a team that's in on Jacob Markstrom, but Braden Holpe is also a free agent. They're probably going to let him go. Odds are they're going to be a team that's going to hand it over to a young goalie in Ilya Samsonov. But that just speaks to the type of teams that have some goaltending questions. And all of a sudden, Jacob Markstrom, because of the way that he played in the playoffs, his market has opened up. And <laughs> unfortunately for Canucks fans, a couple of the teams that might be in on him are are the teams in Alberta. Yeah, there was a, a little bit made this week about, you know, it, there's no secret that the Flames would like uh, to improve their goaltending situation. They'll, you know, there's a lot of speculation that they will be one of the active teams in the goaltending market. One of the things that stood out to me this week, uh, both Brock Besser and Quinn Hughes did media availabilities. And this goes back even to the media availabilities we heard from some of the other players was I think this team, the Canucks really bonded during the second half of the year and into the bubble. Most of the teams, when you hear their end of year comments, they found the bubble to be really difficult. They, as much as they didn't want to lose hockey, they were excited to leave the bubble. And outside of Bo Horvat, who had a young family and that was planned well before COVID had hit. I didn't get that sense from a lot of the Canucks. I think they had a really good time. I think they made the best of it. They're a fairly young roster. Uh, a lot of them are not married. A lot of them do not have kids and sort of firm outside responsibilities, if you will. And I think Jacob Markstrom, having started his year, started his career in, in Florida and went through the struggles there, has found some really good success in Vancouver. Uh, I know you've touched on Ian Clark, the goaltending coach in Vancouver and the relationship they have. But I also think the Canucks realize, and, and there's some clips this week from them, they believe that they've got a really good core here and that they're just getting started. And um, I, I think it'll be really tempting for Markstrom to stay. And unless the Canucks are way outside of the market in, as far as dollar value, um, if they're even within the neighborhood of what Calgary's offering, I I would be surprised if Markstrom left. Um, I don't know what you think. Yeah, that that clears with me. I, I look at it in a couple of ways. One, exactly what you outlined there. Um, there is 
and a lot of a lot of times this is overstated in hockey and in sports uh, that you know guys get along and stuff and uh actually and, and we'll get to this in a sec uh reading about manny malhotra who has now left the canucks coaching staff and has gotten an opportunity with toronto maple leafs there's uh, a lot of interesting insight from ken hitchcock who was manny's coach in columbus talking about how well that team got along but they weren't getting results and it wasn't until he sort of pressed and prodded a couple of players manny malhotra uh the primary one of those players uh that the team started to get a, a few more results they started to win a little bit more and so while they they were very close off the ice and they they got along sometimes there's some of those hot spots but when it comes to this canucks team the young players are certainly close. You know that players like Jacob Markstrom, who is a veteran on this team, have been a big part of that. Same could be said about Chris Tanev, who's also an unrestricted free agent. Same could be said about Alex Edler, who has been in a situation where he has continued to stay in Vancouver, even if there were maybe some better opportunities for him to win elsewhere and to play in a prominent role. So a guy like Markstrom sees that, uh, sees I mean, and it's also the same could be applied to some extent to Tyler Toffoli, who looks at the opportunity here in Vancouver. If he plays with Elias Pettersson, if he's on a power play unit with JT Miller and Elias Pettersson and plays on a line with those two guys, you would think, especially the way that the game has opened up a little bit and that he is not in the system that the LA Kings played when they were successful and he was a, a big part of their their forward ranks. That he could have some some pretty incredible offensive seasons. He could he could probably show his game uh, and bring his game to another level. So th those are kind of the, the 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 questions that affect all of these guys because Quinn Hughes and Elias Patterson are going to get paid. Uh, Jacob Markstrom is right now, and, and Chris Tanev to another extent. Though I, I I think we all understand that dealing with Markstrom is first and foremost the priority. So put him first on the list. He's the kind of the first guy, and he's going to have a bigger market. I think. Than Chris Tanev and probably Tyler Toffoli, um, just by nature of the of the way he's played the last couple of years, and also because he's a goaltender, uh, those are going to be that. That's the the, the decision is going to have to be made. Are, are you just going to cash in on a on a couple of good years? And if he does, you know what, all the power to him. He's earned it. But this is when you look at a player and you say, okay, what does he see in this group? What does he see in this organization? And Let's let's talk about Manny Malhotra, who has now gone on to be, he's going to be an assistant coach. He's going to be on the bench, which was not his role with the Canucks. He was an eye in the sky. But that's a that's something that, to me, him getting another, a, a bigger opportunity elsewhere speaks very well of Travis Green's coaching staff, Travis Green's philosophy. And it looks good on the organization that other people are going elsewhere and getting a bigger opportunity which to me speaks to the larger positive nature of what's going on uh, within the Canucks organization. And this is not saying, you know, everyone in the market likes to fight about the front office, the GM doing a good enough job, are there enough scouts in place, all of that kind of stuff. I'm just talking at the base level, what's happening in practice, what's happening in the dressing room, uh, what's happening in some of those video rooms. You talk about Manny Malhotra, he had a pretty big impact on a lot of the young players and to me, anyway, that is uh, even if he's not going to be here going forward, that's the mark of a good organization. You look at other sports, you look at the Seattle Seahawks, you look at the New England Patriots, and they're playing this weekend on Sunday Night Football. They've all often had coaches go elsewhere for opportunities, and they see that as a hugely positive sign of what they're doing and what they have built. And so while it's just one coach in this case and Manny Malhotra, 
I think that that's just another layer of what's going on with the Canucks right now, that there is progress, that there is reason for optimism. And as much as they might have some tough decisions to make on the cap and which players to keep and, and how to project that going forward over the next couple of years when they have some bigger contracts to give up, on a base level, I think this is something to be pretty encouraged about when, you, when you're taking, a, I think, a larger scope at the, at the, at the picture and, and taking a, a bigger look at what's going on. Yeah, make no mistake. The, the Canucks are not as well off without Manny Malhotra, uh, but I give the organization credit. They did not stand in his way. They, um, they allowed him to seek opportunities. Uh, from what I've heard, the, the Leafs were not the only team to inquire with Vancouver. Uh, Manny is from Mississauga, which is a suburb of Toronto. So I believe his family's still there, but Manny, I think was a great one. He was huge in the faceoff circle and really helped, uh, all the Canucks centers, but specifically Bo Horvat. And you could see in the playoffs, the Canucks faceoff numbers were incredible. And Manny was somebody who during his career had worked a lot on that and, and was one of the best in the NHL. And one of the reasons Mike Gillis brought him in originally to Vancouver um, but I think too, he would, he might've also been a good, you know, he wasn't that far removed from the NHL and even listening to, to Brock Besser this week, Manny's still in incredible shape. Like Brock joked that, you know, he probably could have, could have strapped in and, and played a couple of the playoff games for the Canucks, <laughs> you know, had he been able to. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. and I think in some ways he's able to pull guys aside at practice and work on things and he's able to communicate, sort of one foot in the coaching circle, but still with one foot kind of in the dressing room as a former player. And it'll be interesting to see if the Canucks replace him and who they go with. But uh, yeah, I mean, happy for Manny and his family and the opportunity uh, from everything you've sort of read and and people that are close to Manny, they, they expect his trajectory to be fairly quick towards an NHL head coach. This is the next step in that journey. Um, but for the Canucks organization, they definitely unfortunately get worse with, with his, uh, with his departure. This is on air Sportsnet 650 with Israel fair and Alex Blair running through some of the big headlines of the week, uh, pertaining to Vancouver, the NHL and the wide world of sports coming up on the show. Chris Johnston will join us from Edmonton. It is game one of the Stanley cup final Dallas and Tampa. Uh, I'm, interested to ask Chris sort of his his view of how these playoffs have unfolded uh the teams that have made it Tampa obviously is a story on its own they've I believe made four of the last six Eastern Conference finals now they're in uh another Stanley Cup final they they lost to Chicago in 2015 the thought then was that they were going to probably unleash a bunch of them and they've had a couple of deep playoff runs this year included they've also had uh, a couple of playoff disappointments and even in that span missed the playoffs one year, but they have kept this core together. They have kept this group together, coaching staff included. And um, here they are with another opportunity, even if it is during the COVID cup and the circumstances are not what it were expected, but they've gone on this run without Steven Stamkos. And to me anyway, that they're the big, the, the big favorite in this series and and the team that, um, probably, especially for Canucks fans who often like to talk about 2011 and sort of building a team over the long course of time, um, Tampa is, is a team that has done that and they have stuck to their morals and they have still drafted well and filled out some of those gaps on their roster while remaining competitive year to year. And now here's, here's an opportunity to really put uh, an exclamation point on it and win, win the Stanley Cup. 
to think that they're this good and they've missed their captain and notably one of their best players. I mean, I guess that's debatable now. Uh, I'm not sure Steven Stamkos has continued to progress the way that you would have thought when you look back to 2008. Yeah. But, you know, we've chatted about this and, you know, Tampa had the first overall pick in 2008. They take Stamkos and they had the second overall pick in 2009 and they take Victor Hedman. And those are two of the core pieces that they've been able to build the team around. Steve Eiserman did a great job um, sort of surrounding them, finding some great, you know, undrafted late round picks. You know, I'm thinking Braden Point, Tyler Johnson. And, you know, they have been knocking at the door. I I would say I think this is their best chance. Um, But this is actually, you know, I I, on paper and we've talked about this all along. Dallas just keeps sort of beating teams that I thought were better than them. And they've gotten a little bit of sort of bubble magic. And, you know, they're riding Hudobin. And Jamie Ben is looking like Jamie Ben from three or four years ago. And they're just sort of getting it done. And I'll, I'll say the word that I, that I, first thing that comes to mind when I think of this cup final is intrigue. Like I'm, I'm intrigued to watch game one tonight to see how this matches up. And, you know, when I look at it, Dallas has had four days off. Tampa's only had a day off. So does that factor in at all? And they've also both teams have played a lot of hockey. This will be the 22nd game for Dallas in 48 days. And this will be the 20th game for Tampa in 48 days. So, you know, as, as Canuck fans will readily know, you get to the cup final, but injuries and fatigue can start to play a lot on the body. And, you know, they still have at least four games to go. And, you know, you hope everyone stays healthy. Um, but who knows what could play out. And uh, it should be a good one. That gets going tonight at 4.30 on Sportsnet, CBC, uh, Omni. And, uh, yeah, I mean, what's what's your thoughts with, with this series and the breakdown? The only concern I would have with Tampa is that what you just laid out there, some of the fatigue. Uh, they're still not ruling out Stamkos from coming back. Uh, but at this point, that would seem to me to be a huge luxury. But look, Braden Point's been banged up. He's been their best offensive player. Uh, it's I think Kucherov's had a, a pretty strong playoffs, and it's been a bit under the radar. And I mean, Victor Hedman has been has been huge. So to me, like those those are the guys that are gonna are are gonna be the difference makers. You know, surprise surprise, their best players are gonna be the difference makers. But uh, this is this is a huge opportunity for them, and I don't think that there will be any asterisk or anything like that when it comes to to this championship. Uh, so uh, I look forward to seeing what Dallas can bring to the table. Hopefully, they're a little bit more exciting uh, than the Islanders were in that series, where the Islanders were in the twenty something shots deep into overtime the other night. So uh, that was something that I, I think that the the average fan, the, the the fan that didn't have a rooting interest, wasn't necessarily all that excited about, uh, but. Yeah, I you know I'm 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 reset a little bit after that Canucks run, had a little time to to take a break from hockey, but now looking forward to this Cup final. And then uh, just before we go in, in this segment uh, coming up later in the show, just after one o'clock, we're gonna have a bit of a golf roundtable. Adam Stanley, Jason Sobel, two guys that uh, cover golf, uh, and it's the U.S. Open. Alex is a big golf guy, um, and I know he's been you've been diving into some of the some of the winged foot. Uh, storylines, some of the uh, some of the course play. What what stood out to you over the the first couple of days, and and what are you looking forward to over the weekend? 
Well, with the U.S. Open, it's always about the course and how the USGA sets it up, and they always try and make it the toughest test in golf. Uh, on top of that, you've got this year the U.S. Open at Wing- Winged Foot, which is uh, in New York, uh, widely regarded as one of probably the top three most difficult courses that uh, the PGA Tour will play on. And uh, there was a bit of surprise on uh, Thursday. Uh, a, a, quite a few players were under par and, you know, there was uh, Justin Thomas shot a 65, but uh, they made the con- conditions a lot tougher yesterday. And uh, the, I think the collectively, the players that played yesterday were plus 600 over par, which when you think about that, like the best players in the world, it's uh, it's pretty amazing. So I'm keeping one eye on it, but looking forward to having Adam and and Jason on just to kind of chat. Uh, two of the four Canadians made the cut, which is uh, which is great. And so we've got a couple of Canadians on the weekend. Uh, I know you've got one eye on the Arsenal West Ham game that's just kicked <laughs> I off. I do. It's just on over my shoulder. And uh, do we have a score yet? Because I nope. saw Man, Man United no was upset score. this morning. Still, still nils. Uh, yeah, Man United lost to Crystal Palace this morning. Yeah. Uh, Premier League season right back uh, kicked off last week as well, same weekend as the NFL. So, uh, the kind of the biggest sport in England, the biggest sport in the United States, have kicked back off, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna keep tabs on all of that throughout just, those seasons. Just before we go to break, I saw this yesterday, and it's it ties in with Arsenal. But uh, I don't know. Did you see the story about Doug Ellen, the creator of Entourage, working on a new concept? It's Entourage theme, but it's going to be based around Thierry Henry's life. Oh, wow. So, no, I, I did not hear that. That's very interesting. Yeah. So yeah, sort of his time at Arsenal and in the world of football. And anyway, <laughs> um, anyway, they're going to try and the same way Entourage was loosely based on Mark Wahlberg and his time in Hollywood. Right. They're, uh, yeah, they're working on one for, uh, for Thierry Henry. And obviously that might have a little bit more global appeal with soccer being a global game. And uh, yeah. And, you know, Thierry obviously now coaching in, in Montreal and the MLS. So yeah. it ties into a number of different markets, both in Canada, um, the UK, greater Europe and, and the U S so. Yeah. Wow. That, that is, that is interesting. Uh, I know uh, Guy Ritchie, the British director had done some shorts kind of around that idea, like short commercials. I believe they were for Nike kind of entourage style. What, what life is like for a, a big time soccer player. So to, to see that idea kind of on a, on a larger scale is, Definitely, definitely interesting. And that, that'll have that'll have my attention. All right. Coming up next, uh, Chris Johnston from Sportsnet. He's covering the Stanley Cup final. You can listen to the Stanley Cup final right here. Sportsnet 650 coverage starts at four o'clock. Uh, we'll get the latest from him from Edmonton and also kind of get his opinion and, and his insight on some of these Canucks rumors uh, that have been percolating throughout the week. All right. It is on air with Israel Fair and Alex Blair on the home of the Canucks. Sportsnet 650. For Sportsnet today, this is on air with Israel Fair and Alex Blair on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. On air rolls on Israel Fair, Alex Blair, Sportsnet today, Sportsnet 650. We'll have Chris Johnston live from Edmonton coming right up to tee up Game One, Stanley Cup Finals, Tampa Bay Lightning, Dallas Stars. In the break, Alex, I was celebrating because Arsenal scored. I got the update on Twitter. I, could see I, was, <laughs> I couldn't see you, but I was like, oh, is he thrilled? Yeah, it was actually a, a goal that was went to offside review. Everyone's favorite thing, whether it's hockey or soccer, everyone loves offside review. Am I right? Uh, in this case, I did uh, because they deemed it a good goal. Uh, but uh, I mean, generally, I'm, I'm kind of anti-offside review. Uh, I, I feel like we probably have a little bit too much review 
in sports these days. And that's coming from someone who's a baseball fan where there's there's a lot of review in that sport nowadays. Uh, but I mean, the offside one, especially in hockey, is 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 a tough one. Yeah, they caught one the other night, though, that was good. Uh, I, I typically haven't loved it either. It slowed down. Uh, it's gotten a little chintzy at times, but there was one in the game the other night that sort of was a bit of a throwback to the Matt Duchesne offside that sort of was the instigator for this whole offside review. So I guess when it's there, uh, especially if you're the team on the other end, it's uh, it's positive. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, but I think when you look at it from a kind of more... Uh, general fan perspective it's just sometimes it's a lot um so anyway uh good goal for arsenal i'm i'm happy and uh <laughs> we'll we'll keep it moving all right uh, let's bring him in him now he's uh, coming in from edmonton he's been covering all the playoffs for sportsnet first in toronto and now uh with the stanley cup final moving on to edmonton it's uh sportsnet's chris johnston uh hey chris uh when we were at this point last year if I had told you that you'd be covering a Stanley Cup final in Edmonton, what what would you have said? And how different is it, uh, given that it's not involving the Edmonton Oilers at all? Uh, it's so weird. I mean, basically, Rogers Place is a giant sound arena, right? Uh, it's, it's basically a TV show right now. You know, whether it's when I walk up to the rink before these games and there, there couldn't be less atmosphere around the city, which is, you know, quite different from wherever the Stanley Cup is held every season or really any playoff game, even regular season games, you know, and when you're walking to the arena, you usually get a feel that there's some excitement around there. And, and, you know, it's not to say that the games themselves, I think have actually been really good, but it's, it's not something I would say, even after I've probably been, I haven't tallied it up, but I've been to 55 probably games this playoffs, which I'll never be able to do again. Uh, assuming that they won't all be played in the same venues, what we've seen. Um, and I, I don't think I'm really used to it, to be honest. It's still a very, strange kind of lonely experience going to these games cj i don't think it's uh most people wouldn't be surprised that tampa has made it this way with their roster construction uh last season sort of upset withstanding but um dallas is maybe a little bit more of a surprise especially considering the teams they went through in the west uh what are you looking forward to and what do you think will be sort of the difference makers if you will for uh for game one and uh, looking ahead in the stanley cup final here well, I definitely would have had Colorado and Vegas as more likely Western Conference champions than Dallas, and, and they beat them both. So shows how much I know sometimes when you come into this. And, you know, getting a little bit closer here to the Stars and watching them play in the last round, I think what's really worked for them is they, they're a very tight, systematic team. You know, one thing that showed up well for them even before the COVID-19 pause is they're, they're you know, elite at denying high-danger chances against. And, and so... You know, you, you kind of have a strength-on-strength matchup here because, you know, Tampa has some real difference-making offensive players, you know, might be getting Steven Stamkos back potentially at some point in this series, which would give them another one. And, and you know, Dallas has kind of built from the, the, the blue line out uh, and will we'll obviously look to, to control that part of the game. So, you know, I'm, I'm kind of interested to see how that manifests itself. I You know, I, I almost feel like the game one of a series – it's dangerous to draw any conclusions. I find game one's a little strange, especially here we have two teams on, on opposite conferences. So there's, there's really not any familiarity at all between, you know, the stars and the lightning. They, you know, they, they played once or twice this year and it was many, 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 many months ago. So, um, you know, tonight's game might be a, its own sort of anomaly, but I think after that, it's just about 
you know, whether, whether offense can be defense and, um, you know, the, the lightning certainly have kind of the, the stronger case on paper, but it doesn't always play out that way on the ice. What, what we will see in this series is two incredibly good defensemen, one uh, both at different sort of stages of their career, if you will, Victor Hedman, uh, who was the second overall pick in 2009, and we've got Miro Heiskanen with Dallas. Um, both are logging huge minutes. Uh, I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about how they have been such a key role, uh, played a key role for both of their teams throughout the journey thus far. Well, I think they both sort of illustrate how hockey shifted, you know, even say in the last five years. I mean, obviously the listeners in Vancouver will under, understand having watched Quinn Hughes, you know, make such a, an immediate and strong impact on the way the Canucks play. And, and you know, I see him kind of along the same vein as, as what you get from, from Haskin. And, uh, you know, Hedman, what sets him apart is he skates so well, but he's so big too. I mean, he, he's got just – a completely unmatched set of skills because, you know, usually there's lots of defensemen that are six, six as he is, but there's very few that skate so well. And then on top of that, he's just got such a great awareness, you know, and, and I think, you know, where this is representing an, an evolution of sorts is that, you know, I think teams play more as, as five, five man groups than, than defense versus forward. I mean, we still have positions, but you know, when, when you're watching Haskin and, and Hedman in particular, I mean, both are, completely unafraid to lead the rush up the ice. Um, you know, they skate so well, they're able to recover defensively and, and get back to and be in position that way. But, you know, they're almost like, like rovers a little bit more than I think than we used to see defensemen play. And so, you know, it's, it's part evolution driven by the fact you have players with these talents and the abilities to do it. But I think coaches have become a little bit more open to playing this way. And, and that's why with Hedman and Haskin, and you're looking at two players that have put up huge point totals in this playoffs. I mean, Hedman, is is literally keeping company with Hall of Famers at that nine goals I mean, the, the most ever in a one playoff year for a defenseman is twelve. You know, Haskin's a leading scorer on the stars and, and you know some of their more traditional stars, you know, Jamie Benn, you know, who came on late in, in the Western Conference final, but Tyler Sagan hasn't put up much offense. I mean, both these teams are generating a lot from their back end and, and I think it actually could make for a pretty compelling series if everyone remains at the top of their game. Chris Johnston on air with us, Sportsnet 650. At this time of year, CJ, it, the teams that make the cup final tend to become kind of an example around the league of how teams should be built, the kind of players that you need. But what interests me the most about this matchup, and I think with uh, Dallas to a certain extent, but certainly Tampa Bay, is that they have maintained a lot of continuity. They could have fired John Cooper at certain times if they had disappointed in the playoffs, not made the playoffs. Uh, they have really kept this group together. Even Steve Eiserman leaving hasn't really changed the way that the organization, the front office, does things. What do you think the lesson is from Tampa and, and the way that they have cultivated this group, not from an on-ice perspective, but more more so from that top-down organizational perspective and, and, and some of their values as an organization? Well, I, I, for me, they're the current model uh, of, of how you should do business in, in the way that the game works now. And you know, it might sound almost premature to say that because they haven't won a cup and there's certainly no guarantees they're going to win this one. But if you draw back on the last six seasons, you know, no team in the league has won more games. No team has won more playoff games. No team scored more goals. I believe they're fifth in goals against over that, that kind of stretch. I mean, they've been consistently the best team in the league and all they're really missing is a championship. And of course they, they played for one of those in 2015 and they've lost a couple of game sevens in the conference final along the way. So, I mean, they, they've just had, an immaculate run of, of being a top tier contender where, 
pretty much every year, you know, we could identify them as a team that, that was likely to win the cup and we weren't sounding crazy. I think, you know, what they've done is they've used some of their advantages to their advantage. I mean, they, they play in Florida, a tax-free place. They, they play in a nice city, you know, a great place to live, to have a great quality of life there. And, and you know, they've, they've managed to kind of find all these new pieces ever since getting Steven Stamkos first overall in 2008 and Victor Hedman second overall in 2009. I mean, they've completely turned over the, the rest of the roster, but for most of that time have been, you know, an elite team. And I think that they've done it because they've been able to, to sign each of those players to what I would deem below market value contracts for where they were when they signed them. And so they, they really haven't made many bad deals. They haven't made many bad trades and they, they've, they've just sort of, I think, been able to, to stay ahead of the curve. And, you know, what's almost cruel about it is that Julian Breezebaugh, their general manager, I mean, he's, he's got tough decisions to make here in the next few weeks. I mean, this cup final could go to September 30th and, and we've got the draft October 6th and 7th and, and free agency October 9th. I mean, he's going to have a week window where he's going to have to trade players off his roster in order to, to make room or keep enough room to resign Mikhail Sergachev, uh, Anthony Sorelli, who scored the overtime winning goal in the Eastern Conference final. Um, you know, they still have some, some tough moves to make and they also have a, you know, some of their depth pieces are, are going to become UFAs, whether it's a Luke Shen or Zach Bogosian. I mean, those guys might not be able to be brought back. And so, the challenge it seems to be there for them every summer because they're always kind of, you know, doing the salsa with the, with the cap ceiling. They, they're never a team that has a lot of room, but they always seem to somehow find value in all their players, whether it's the star guys that they've kept to, to pretty manageable contracts, but even some of those depth pieces that are coming in on league minimum deals and they're playing big minutes. I mean, Luke Shen is on a, the, the lowest contract you can have in the league, 700,000 this year. He hasn't been on the ice for a goal against in the playoffs at five on five. I mean, you know, we, we know what he is. He's a very straightforward player, but he's given them a hundred minutes where they haven't been scored on at the most important time of year. And so you know, I, I just think they do a great job of finding value and, and not overspending on players and, and then ultimately making hard decisions. You know, remember thinking back, they traded Martin St. Louis, who was, you know, a franchise player. Um, you know, they traded Jonathan Drouin, who they had trouble with after picking him number three overall. You know, this has been a team that, that hasn't done it the safe way. And, you know, credit to them because they, they just haven't made very many missteps along the way. He's Chris Johnson, Sportsnet Insider. Um, Chris, you and Elliot every Saturday do Saturday headlines. So we'll uh, we'll bounce around here uh, and sort of do our own version of that, if we will. Uh, one of the names that's popped up in Minnesota this week, uh, especially in the Vancouver market and the Calgary market, is Matt Dumba. Um Lots been sort of made a former first uh, first round pick. Um, what is Matt Dumba? Um, where do you see him in a different roster? Um, is he a top four, top two? Um, give us a sense of what you know what he is for prospective teams that are looking at him. Well, and, and I think that's where the debate comes in in terms of if Minnesota will trade him and what you're giving up to get him. Um, you know, certainly the Wild are open to those conversations because. They've got an older roster. They've got a new GM. I think they've got a mandate to, to sh- you know, shake things up a little bit. Um, they've extended Jonas Brodine in the last week too, so they, they kind of have some of their pieces in place. And you know, Matt Dumba plays a, a pretty high quality game at a high quality position. He's only 26 years old, and so you know there is interest in him. You know, the Winnipeg Jets are a team that have called on him as well. And you know, I think that the trouble is, is I, I don't believe the Wild will make that deal unless you're giving them back. Uh, an impact forward and, and likely a centerman uh, because that's a, that's an area of organizational weakness for them. 
And, you know, most teams, we, we, the, there's a debate as old as time in hockey front offices. What would you rather have, a true number one center or a true number one defenseman? And, you know, I don't think that I don't think you would get an equal answer to that if you pulled all the general managers around the league. But the point is, is if you're if you're giving up what you think is a quality defenseman. And I think Matt Dumba has shown himself to be that over the years. Um, you know, you're, you're going to have to give up something, you know, decent in return. And so, you know, I, I don't get the feeling that Bill Guerin is, you know, he doesn't feel like he has to make this trade. I think he's willing to make that trade. And um, we'll see if anyone steps up and gives him a package and makes him think. The name on the other side in Vancouver, and uh, as Alex and I have been pointing out throughout our show, and I think has been pointed out on on the station throughout the week, uh, there's kind of varying degrees of the validity of, of Brock Besser's name being out there. It just, I think those two, Dumba for Besser, just gets paired together because that kind of looks like a, a trade that would make sense, but uh, we don't we don't really have a strong idea whether or not that's something that, that the Canucks would do, that the Wild w- would entertain, uh, because they, they need some of that depth up the middle. Uh, when it comes to the Canucks, and it's kind of slowly but surely getting to the point where the Jacob Markstrom discussions are, are kicking off, they've got a bunch of free agents to address, uh, they've got some trade possibilities, they've got the cap stuff to, to, uh, to, to deal with as well. Uh, from what you're hearing right now, where where are the Canucks at in terms of uh, their preparation for what's going to be a pretty crazy offseason? Well, they're they're having discussions with some of the free agents, I think, to get a sense of where the market is. And obviously, those, those discussions have been going on for a while, especially as they pertain to Markstrom. You know, they talked throughout the season at times and got back at it when the return to play was in, in place. You know, I think, you know, both sides have a pretty clear idea of where each other see that contract needing to be to make it make sense. And, you know, the truth is it might not ever get to the point where it makes equal sense for both sides to, to sign it. Um, I don't think there's a, there's a team, honestly, there's lots of teams that have issues, you know, Tampa being among them, the Islanders have to make some interesting decisions and, and resign Matt Barzell. But, you know, I, I don't think there's a front office that has more balls in there than the Canucks, you know, even with, you know, what, what's going to have to happen in those other two places I mentioned, just because, there's a lot of different ways you can go. You know, Tyler Toffoli expressed his desire to want to stay in Vancouver, but, you know, signing him to me increases the odds that you're trading perhaps someone like Besser or, or you know, another established member of the team. You know, Jim Benning raised the possibility of trading from, from some of his younger players and I think a lot, led a lot of us to, to assume that he's talking about Jake Vertanen or pointing to Jake Vertanen with that, that comment he made after the season. And so, you know, I don't have a clear idea where they're at with everything. You know, I, I do think figuring out, the Markstrom piece is probably the first domino to fall uh, because if they reach a point where they, you know, the sides feel there's just not a deal to be made there, then, you know, getting a goaltender to play with Thatcher Demko becomes a pretty important priority. And, you know, at some point uh, I think they have to figure out if, if they're going to be able to, to do extensions with Pedersen and Hughes a year out. I mean, if that makes sense for them, it's, it's a tough time to be negotiating those kind of contracts just because there's so much industry-wide, um, uncertainty i guess about how this is all going to play out how the, the reality of a flat cap is is going to affect the league long term how let's face it i mean gary bettman's going to speak here in 20 minutes or so but I, I don't know what next year looks like i mean i think that there's still a world where there's there's not games next year i don't think that's going to happen but i don't think anyone could say 100 percent with certainty that we're going to have a, a next season and so you know if, if things were normal i think that that would be a bigger priority but but you know might be pushed to the back burner and so you know it's a it's a there's a lot of crucial decisions to be made here. When, when I talk about Tampa, not making many mistakes. I mean, there's lots of ways that mistakes could be made and, and, you know, 
Jim Benning and, and his staff, uh, you know, they'll understand this pretty well. I think they're pretty deep into trying to wade through those, the, the earliest parts of those issues. Chris Johnson joining us on Sportsnet 650. Uh, Chris, as the teams have been eliminated, it's become a busy time of year for uh, people like you and Elliot. And uh, just uh, ahead of game one and, and Saturday headlines tonight, just wondering uh, if you give us a quick preview on uh, sort of the stories that you and Elliot are chasing for Saturday headlines. I cannot reveal all that just now. You would actually be surprised, though. I can talk about our processes. You wouldn't believe how, you know, Elliot and I talked typically on Friday night and we spoke last night. We spoke this morning. And we're talking about things we're hearing from around the league. And, and, but you know, the show really doesn't take full shape until I would say the first period of the game. And so, you know, I can't tell you for sure what we're going to say or what we're not going to say. I think certainly, obviously the, the commissioner's availability will dominate a little bit of what we're working on. You know, the Alex Petrangelo story, you know, with him being quite candid about the, the blues and him um, breaking off conversations and what that might mean for, for his future will, will be a, a big topic of discussion. We've got some nuggets on how the Stanley Cup is going to be the same as past ones in terms of the, the ceremony around it and, and some things that will be different. And, and let's hope we get a few more scoops between the end of this call and uh, <laughs> 7 or 8 p.m. local time here when, when we got to go on TV and do that, that segment. Well, uh, we're looking forward to it. Uh, CJ, thanks for taking the time and, and try to enjoy what's going to be a, a pretty strange but hopefully memorable Stanley Cup final. Thank you. And I actually will. You know, the one thing I'll say just as an anecdotally is the way Tampa's celebration was when they won the Eastern Conference final was like unexpectedly emotional. Like it felt emotional yeah. even in the hollowness of the empty arena, seeing the look on Stamkos' face. I mean, I think. I think this is going to be something I remember for the rest of my life. I don't know who's going to win and what it's going to look like, but that moment was really striking. And I think the next one we see when, when one of those teams gets the cup is going to be something just, it, it, I can't even imagine. I'm totally burnt out. And those guys have been living behind a fence for eight weeks. Like I can't even imagine <laughs> the, the, the way that the emotions will explode out of them when they win the cup. Yeah, no, I'm with you. Thanks, CJ. Thanks guys. All right, Chris Johnson, Sportsnet Insider, a uh, big part of Hockey Night in Canada tonight, as uh, Alex has mentioned, Saturday headlines. Uh, I think that's a really good point to kind of close and, and wrap this up, Alex. Um, we launched this show uh, during the Canucks run. Uh, my day job is at The Athletic as an editor, so I was very involved in terms of uh, a lot of those game night content things and, and, and stuff like that. And I was I was pretty burnt out after a month, and I needed a little bit of a reset, uh, just on a personal level, watching different sports, getting away from hockey a little bit. And I think what what CJ's talking about there about Tampa, and especially as as we talked about with him, what they have been through as a team over the last few years, and the fact that their captain's not in the lineup, and that they've had uh, last year, and a lot of a lot of players from last year's team are, are back. They've had a lot of continuity in that respect uh, after having an amazing regular season, 62 wins, losing in the first round, and this added emotion. And I think as as time goes on, these are two teams. Dallas has had some of those ups and downs too, where it's, look, there's a lot of positives. Rick Bonus is a very positive story right now. Myro Haskinen's a really positive story right now. And Anton Kudovin's a really positive story right now. But it's been some ups and downs for Jamie Benn and Tyler Sagan and some of the other players on that team and as they try to take hold uh, and, and be competitive. And so they're still playing for the Stanley Cup as strange as the circumstances are at the end of this six, seven games. 
series, uh, a team is going to be able to say that they were the, the Stanley Cup champion that year. And that regardless of the circumstances, I think that emotional level that, that CJ talked about is going to be on display, whether it is just in the celebration or it's whether it's in, in the games, because there is there's another level here that none of these players uh, have ever gone through that. Not that, that anybody has ever gone through in, in this kind of in this kind of environment and, and the stakes, the stakes are still really high. Yeah, that's the one the one sense I've gotten to talking to people that have been in the bubble, whether it was Ian McIntyre or even I had a, a chance to spend a little time on the phone with CJ yesterday. They just feel white. It, it doesn't have the same routine. Uh, one of the words that I sort of got from a lot of those um, people that have been there, whether they're in the bubble or, or just in Edmonton outside the bubble, um, there, there isn't the sort of social dynamic that there typically is with, with teams, players, coaches, executives, players. And uh, yeah, I mean, actually your colleague, Sean Fitzgerald has a good article in the uh, Athletic today, just looking at Jim Houston as he's about to call a Stanley Cup final. And Jim had made the choice to not be in the bubble. And so he's been living in an apartment in both Toronto, now an apartment in Edmonton. But it sort of struck me that, you know, Jim talked about he he's able to go out and go for a run in the morning, you know, whereas if he'd been in the bubble, he doesn't have that ability. And as somebody who spent quite a bit of time on the road when I was working with Hockey Night in Canada, um, I know when I would wake up in another city, you're sort of in a hotel, you don't have your typical routine. Uh, either I would go for a run or a walk, like in whatever city I was in in the morning, and to sort of think that you couldn't leave a hotel, just sort of, sort of fresh air to clear your head, you know, whatever. Um, I think that's probably a really trying thing for for them. So, um, you know, I know I know CJ said yesterday when I was talking to him, he said it's been a long it's been a long grind, and he said I haven't even been playing hockey. So. Um, I think everyone, you can see it with the NHL schedule. They've moved this thing along as quickly as they could. Uh, Tampa just finished up Thursday night, game one of the cup finals tonight. So it's moving along uh, really quickly. Yeah, it, it has been. And, and hopefully we we get a, a series to remember. I know the Canucks fans will have pretty fond memories of the bubble tournament because of the way that that, that went for, for Vancouver. There's just a lot of moments there and, well, there's there's certainly going to be some disappointment for some of the other teams. I think, by and large, the tournament has gone on well, and hopefully, these two teams can can cap it off with a memorable a memorable cup. They've both grinded to get here, and there's there's a lot of connections between those two teams. So, again, Stanley Cup Final Game One tonight. Coverage starts on Sportsnet 650 at uh, four o'clock. Uh, I believe Brendan Bachelor and Dan Riccio will be on the call. So, uh, check that out and. Uh, Check out the, the entire series will be held and, and broadcast right here on Sportsnet 650. Coming up next, we're going to do something a little bit different, something that we haven't tried before. Uh, it's a big weekend in golf. The U.S. Open uh, is in the, the middle of its play. Or it's in day three of, of day four. And so coming up next, we're going we're gonna to welcome a couple of guests. Adam Stanley and Jason Sobel are going to join me and Alex to talk about uh, at the same time, they're going to have a little bit of a roundtable, U.S. Open roundtable about uh, a huge tournament. Obviously, golf uh, has been playing for, for a few months now through the pandemic, but this was a big deal to get the U.S. Open uh, back and playing. And uh, some of the Canadian storylines as well. There's a lot going on. It's a, it's a historic course at Winkfoot uh, in New York State as well. So we're going we're gonna to do that and, and uh, bring on a couple of voices to help with that conversation. You're on air with Israel Fair and Alex Blair on the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650.
time for Sportsnet Today. This is On Air with Israel Fair and Alex Blair on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. On Air rolls on. Sportsnet Today, Sportsnet 650, Israel Fair and Alex Blair. Going to talk a little bit of golf. Um, This is Alex's area of expertise. He's a big golf guy. Um, I am a typical golf fan in that I I do pay attention to the majors, though I I would put the Masters number one, and I think the British number two on my list of what I like to watch. But I do have a little personal story uh, before we get to our golf roundtable, and we'll be joined by Adam Stanley. You can follow him on Twitter at Adam underscore Stanley. He's a golf writer and contributor to sportsnet.ca. And we'll also be joined by Jason Sobel, golf writer at the Action Network and a host of U.S. Open Radio on Sirius XM to get their perspective on, on obviously, a, a huge weekend in golf. Probably if it, I have my, my personal too, but it, it's definitely third on that list, uh, regardless of how you feel about Ryder Cup and things like that. It's a, it's a, it's a big tournament. Uh, it's def- obviously a big tournament in the United States. And so uh, we will we'll, we'll bring them on and, and have their, their perspective with Alex kind of leading that discussion. But the tournament is being played at, at Wingfoot and, I distinctly remember when Phil Mickelson had his meltdown there. I believe it was 2004, and it was it, he had not won a major before, and he was he, he needed he needed this win, and he, he melted down. And his post game or his post round uh, news conference was just him saying over and over again that he was such an idiot, and that's that that has stayed with me all these years later. And I remember. I was a kid at the time going to play mini golf. And every time I screwed up a shot, I was doing my best Phil Mickelson and, and telling anyone around, anyone that wanted to listen, that I was I was such an idiot. <laughs> yeah, no, it's uh, it's one of those sort of historic, when you think of sort of meltdowns in in sort of major championship golf, the two that uh, the two most recent that come to mind at least, uh, well, actually, I guess three, because you could talk about Dustin Johnson's three putt at the US Open in 2015. Uh, but Phil Mickelson, who, you know, has still yet to win. It's the one major he has not won is the, uh, the U S right. open. Yep. He's finished runner up six times. Um, but yeah, he was on the 72nd hole. All he needed was a par to win the championship. And, uh, he sprayed it left off the hospitality tent and ended up with a double bogey handing the, the 2006 U S open to Australian Jeff Ogilvy. So, um, and I guess the other one, the, the, maybe the most famous is Jean Vandeveld in 1999. So, um, anyway, yeah, it's moving day at, uh, at Wingfoot, And, uh, actually we've got a new leader who's just, uh, Matthew Wolf is actually having himself a day. He's five under for the day right now, five under for the championship. So he's actually just, uh, one stroke ahead of Patrick Reed. But uh, really looking forward to if you uh, if you're into golf and for whatever reason you don't happen to follow either of these guys, they're two of my favorite follows on on Twitter, and they'll keep you updated with everything from the PGA, uh, LPGA, um, whether it's Presidents Cup, Ryder Cup, uh, sort of golf industry. Uh, you can follow Adam at uh, at Adam underscore Stanley on Twitter and Jason Sobel, who uh, was with ESPN, was with the Golf Channel, and now is uh, with the Action Network and. As Izzy mentioned, hosts U.S. Open Radio on Sirius XM. I think they had David Faraday on earlier today. And uh, he's at Jason Sobel, S-O-B-E-L, and then T-A-N at the end for the Action Network. Um, 
have you have you watched any of the golf? Is he have uh, you keeping an eye? I know your Arsenal's playing right now, so I know you've kind of probably got your eye on on that. Yeah, I, I haven't been, uh, but I, I'm interested to to hear from the guys. And uh, I know that uh, prior to the weekend that you had uh, you had said that you'd done a little bit of research on on the course and the and the and how it would play, Alex. And so, um, what what has how has that looked to you uh, off the first couple of days? Well, let's bring it up. Like, I, I think it looks tough. I know Tiger said it's probably one of the three top courses, three toughest courses that they play, uh, along with Carnoustie and Oakmont. But uh, let's bring Adam and, and Jason on. And maybe, Adam, we'll start with you. Um, there's so much around the U.S. Open and course setup from the USGA. Just wondering your thoughts on how Wingfoot has looked uh, through two and a half days so far. Yeah, I mean, the, the interesting thing was that the uh, director of golf courses at Wingfoot, the superintendent, the lead superintendent there was very much on the record before the week started saying that his uh, team was going after a winning score of eight over par. So uh, I think coming into Thursday, there was a lot of anticipation for a lot more carnage than what we're seeing right now with the leader being at five under par. So uh, certainly we all saw kind of videos and photos of, of the rough being as high as it was, you know, the greens just absolutely ripping uh, as well. But uh, I mean, these are the best players in the world. And, and if you kind of give them just a little bit of an opening, uh, they're going to take advantage of it. Now, there are some extremely high scores. There's been some extremely, you know, frustrating golf being played. There's been, you know, a lot of big guys having missed the cut shooting well, well over par uh, over the first two rounds. But to see, you know, kind of a, a handful of guys under par and certainly the leader at five under uh, when the desired course setup was eight over, I don't think it's quite playing as difficult as it could be. P picking up on that, Jason, um, of the notable names who missed the cut, who surprised you the most? Oh, you know, well, first of all, thanks for having me on. I, I would throw out that, you know, I know a lot of casual fans will only tune into the majors, look at Tiger, they look at Phil Mickelson and say, wow, they missed the cut, they're not going to be around not really that much of a surprise anymore, really, for either of them. A, a little bit more of a surprise for Tiger than Phil. But I'll throw two names out, uh, guys uh, who, uh, who hail from England and I thought would be really good plays this week. One of them, Tommy Fleetwood, owns a really strong track record at the U.S. Open. Another one, Matthew Fitzpatrick, who plays well on really difficult golf courses in tough conditions like we have this week. But neither one of those players made the cut. And so, to me, those are... Two of the more surprising names who aren't here on the weekend, but we've got a, a bunch of really good players on the leaderboard. And uh, just to um, advance on what Adam said a minute ago, as far as Wingfoot right now, I, it might be the best example of a golf course being a living, breathing element right now with uh, the weather conditions um, affecting things and impacting things on uh, really like a minute-by-minute -minute basis because we have seen this golf course go from Eh, probably a little bit too easy on Thursday to, wow, it's really hard on Friday. And then you wake up this morning and say, oh, boy, now it's like getting really hard Saturday morning. And all of a sudden the wind is laid down a little bit and guys are able to uh, post some scores here in the afternoon. The current leader, Matthew Wolf, he's 500 for the day, 500 for the championship through 11 holes here on Saturday. Uh, Adam, two of the four Canadians made the cut, Adam Hadwin and Taylor Pendrith. Uh, just maybe a quick thought on the Canadians, what you liked and uh, and what you saw also from Corey Connors who missed the cut uh, as well as Mackenzie Hughes. 
Yeah, I mean, from a from a Canadian perspective, I was I, I would say probably a little bit more surprised that Mackenzie Hughes uh, missed the cut, just kind of coming in to this week with all the momentum, having finished 14th uh, on the FedEx Cup last season. Um, and, and basically just having a heck of a run in kind of this latter portion of the uh, of the tour season after the COVID-19 break. So a little bit more surprised to see him miss the cut. Same actually with, with Corey, given Corey's uh, excellent start on Thursday. Uh, you know, he's one of the best ball strikers on the planet and, and proved that kind of early on uh, in the week. And then, of course, just kind of ran into the, the really difficult afternoon conditions at Wingfoot yesterday to miss the cut. But the two guys who did find the weekend in Adam Hadwin and Taylor Penrith. I mean, Adam uh, has played some okay golf uh, since the COVID-19 break, but he's managed to kind of put it all together so far this week. And, and now he's found the weekend and, you know, didn't play all that great today, uh, but is still in a prime position to have a, a fine finish tomorrow. I think the biggest story of the week from a Canadian perspective has to be Taylor Pendrith. Um, you know, he's in here with nothing to lose this week, uh, was one of the top guys on the Corn Ferry Tour, which is how he earned a spot into the tournament. Uh, and I think a lot of certainly American, whether they be golf journalists or fans or whomever, you know, they're going to see him and he, they're going to see his numbers and kind of have, okay, I, I got to keep an eye on this guy over the next year or so when, when he finally does earn that PGA tour card, I, I think he's number one in driving distance this week. He certainly was uh, earlier on in the week. So driving distance, but the cool thing is for a guy who hits it as far as he does, uh, he's got, excellent hands he's got a magical short game and we're kind of seeing somebody who's kind of gone out there played this week with nothing to lose made the cut didn't play all that great today but again massive learning experience for him he his fiance works at a hospital in Hamilton Ontario hasn't seen her in the last five months uh, so this is a guy who's just out there trying to play golf trying to get to the end of the season uh, to return back home to Canada so you got to just give kudos to him he's come in here he's had a great debut at a major championship Saturday Golf Roundtable on Sportsnet 650. Pleased to be joined by Adam Stanley, golf writer and contributor to Sportsnet.ca. And from the U.S., Jason Sobel, golf writer at the Action Network and host of U.S. Open Radio on Sirius XM. Guys, when we look at the leaderboard right now, Matthew Wolf uh, in the lead, but Patrick Reed had, uh, you know, had held the lead overnight. Xander Shoffley's in there, Bryson DeChambeau. Uh, Justin Thomas had sort of the low round of the week with a 65 on Thursday. Um, Give me your thoughts on who you think is maybe a favorite from this point, and maybe give me a, a thought on a dark horse as well. We'll start with you, Jason. Yeah, well, I think uh, whenever we talk favorite, I always go to the betting odds, and I look at the actual favorite, not who I think is the favorite. And I believe the last time I checked, it was Patrick Reed, but I don't think Matthew Wolf had, uh, had won up to him at that point and gotten into sole possession of the lead. So it is probably very close uh, in the books as far as the live numbers between Matthew Wolf and Patrick Reed right now, probably each of them right around three to one or so uh, with uh, what sort of uh, a round and a half left to play. If I had to pick somebody, boy, I really liked Reed coming in just because uh, even though he's missing so many fairways, uh, the short game has been so good uh, coming into this week. Plus the fact that seven of the last 10 U S open champions had been either leader or co-leader after 36 holes. So even in a tournament where, hey, you figure if you go a few under par, you can make up ground in a hurry, it tends to be the guy who's leading in the weekend that kind of uh, gives everybody else the stiff arm and is able to stay in the lead. That said, watch out for Xander Schauffele. Uh He was my second favorite guy coming in. I had John Rahm at the top of my list coming into the week, but Xander Schauffele with 
uh, six career top 10 finishes in only 12 major championship starts, includes three finishes of sixth or better in this very golf tournament, and he just has the right mentality for U.S. Open, so I'm keeping my eye on him right now. And uh, Xander Shoffley's two under for the day, two under for the championship. Adam, uh, maybe your dark horse pick. Uh, who do you like that maybe uh, is sort of somewhere at the top of the leaderboard? Yeah, I mean, you know, Jason's out there a lot more often than I am week in and week out and kind of seeing these guys up uh, up close and personal. I was going to mention Xander as well, just given his, his track record at major championships. But uh, it is very odd for me to use this golfer's name and dark horse in the same sentence. But I'm going to call, call out Rory McIlroy. Uh, for the balance of today and then uh, well into tomorrow as well two under par today uh, so he's inside the top 10 one over for the championship Uh, going into tomorrow if he can kind of build off that momentum if he shoots two under par again tomorrow if he gets into red figures um, I'm going to say that he's either going to be shooting for uh, for the lead or kind of right right there as well so it's odd to call Rory McIlroy a dark horse uh, but given this uh, this week and everything that's happened, you know, I, I do think that he's got a great shot to uh, to do this again tomorrow Sunday uh, and have a real chance at uh, at taking the title. Adam Stanley and Jason Sobel joining us here on Sports at 650 to talk about the 120th U.S. Open. Uh, just before you guys came on, Israel was mentioning his memory of uh, the 2006 uh U.S. Open at Wingfoot and Phil Mickelson on the 72nd hole, uh, ending up on a double bogey and losing the championship. Um, Phil's had six runner-ups at the U.S. Open, and now at 50 years old, I'm just sort of wondering, he was plus 13 this week, didn't make the cut, but you look ahead at you know the future venues of the U.S. Open. We got Torrey Pines next year, the Country Club in Brookline the year after, L.A. Country Club in Pinehurst, where he was a runner-up in 1999. I'm just wondering, is the window closed for Phil with this championship? Because it would be such a great story for him to complete the career Grand Slam. Yeah, I'll take that one. I, I think that it's uh, if it's not closed, it's, uh, you can barely fit your fingers through it right now because he will be 51 uh, during U.S. Open next uh, week, next next year, if indeed he, uh, he is deciding to play, if indeed they do play in June, of course. Um, and... If you look at what he's done over the, the past year, okay, he's got a second place in Memphis, uh, the WGC, which should help his world ranking. But he said earlier this year that if he hadn't qualified for the U.S. Open, he wasn't going to take an exemption. And I'm sure the USGA would love to give him as a six-time runner-up, as a Hall of Fame golfer, as a, a legendary player. They'd love to give him an exemption. But if Phil still has uh, some bad taste in his mouth towards Tory Pines, which he has indeed had in the past, then I would not be surprised if Phil Mickelson does not even play in the U.S. Open next year, let alone have a good chance to go out there and win. The other part of that is, uh, even if he wants to take an exemption, if his game is where it was coming into this week, shooting a 79-74, just not able to hit any fairways off the tee whatsoever, then I'm not sure Phil wants to play in another one of these things. As much as he would love to go out there, and win that elusive U.S. Open title. I'm not sure he wants to go out there and, and go through the work that it requires and uh, quite honestly embarrass himself, which uh, I'm not sure he's quite there yet, but uh, I know he wasn't happy about how it turned out this week, and I know that uh, you know if given another chance to go out and just play two rounds in a ceremonial type of deal instead of having a chance to win the golf tournament, I don't think that would appeal to him too much. 
Yeah, I mean, I think he hit two two fairways, maybe three, four fairways uh, on on Friday. So you know, just a couple in the opening round, and you know, to Jason's point. I'm sure that the USGA would be willing to give him one of his special exemptions or who knows, maybe Phil will win the U S senior open one year and, and get an exemption into the, uh, into the U S open as well, moving forward. But, you know, just given what we saw this week, despite, you know, the, the marathon practice session before he got going, uh, I think it was on Thursday. It just looked like he was so out of sorts and, you know, the U.S. Open is going to test your game physically and, and mentally. And I just don't think that Phil now has all sort of pistols firing like he did, you know, over the last decade or two, uh, specifically for this championship. Jason Sobel and Adam Stanley joining us here on On Air with Alex Blair and Israel Fair. Uh, Matthew Wolf leading the U.S. Open just uh, about a couple weeks after Colin Morikawa won the PGA Championship. Uh, it feels like we're sort of being ushered into a new era of some young players. Uh, but it doesn't feel like the era that sort of came before with Rory and Jordan Spieth and Dustin Johnson is is all that done. But I did want to ask you guys about Jordan Spieth. Uh, he, he popped up on the TV the other day and I was thinking, God, I haven't... I haven't heard that much about Jordan. You know, I look back at his 2015 year. He wins the U, uh, he wins the Masters and the U.S. Open. He's second at the PGA Championship. But when I looked at it, I couldn't believe it that his last win on tour was the 2017 Open Championship. What What's going on with, with Jordan Spieth? <laughs> well, I think Jordan Spieth made a huge step forward this week. And if you look at his scores, you wouldn't think so. And he's been struggling for a while. But for months, for even a couple of years, Jordan Spieth has been telling us publicly that he's close, that, you know, hey, it's, it's working on the range. I'm just having a tough time bringing it to the course, but I know it's going to come around soon. And all of us watching Jordan Spieth know that isn't the truth. We're, we're watching him saying he, he is nowhere near close to getting back to uh, any semblance of what he was before. Well, this week, Jordan Spieth stood in front of the cameras, stood in front of the microphones and said, look, I just, it's really hard to play a U.S. Open when I have no idea where the ball is going. I, I would love to get back to the point where I was before. I'm working really hard at it, but right now my game is just not there. And like I said, I think that's a huge step in the right direction. He is admitting publicly that his, he is nowhere close to the golfer that he once was or, or really could be again in the future. And again, if, if Jordan Spieth is a stock, um, he is far from the all-time high, but I am buying low on him right now. I am bullish for the long-term future. The short term is not going to be good. It's not going to be good for a while. Um, what does he need? I, I don't. You know, there's there's a million uh, couch analysts out there who will uh, tell Jordan Spieth he needs to fire his coach, he needs to fire his caddy, he needs to put his change from his right pocket to his left pocket, whatever it might be. Um, but I think he just needs to figure it out on his own. And for anyone else to tell him, here's what you need to do in order to get back to uh, one of the best players in the world again, I, I don't think it's going to come from anybody else. I think it has to come from him himself figuring it out. But again, I love the fact that at least now he's admitting what we can all see with our own eyes. Yeah, and bu building off of that point quickly, you know, Jordan Spieth is only 27 years old. Um, you know, if he's been struggling and clearly has been over the last couple of years and, and likely will be uh, moving forward, at least in the short term, like Jason said, you know, this is a guy who's still got, what, a decade and a half 
more on uh, at the highest level in the sport to to try to figure it out. And, and he looked so lost this week. But uh, to Jason's point again, he finally kind of came out and, and said as such. And I think everyone was just kind of waiting for this moment. And maybe this acceptance was exactly what he needed to uh, kind of break free of the chains of people thinking, oh, everything's fine, when really uh, it's not. And it's, it's far from, from being okay. So uh, I guess we'll see when, when Jordan decides to tee it up next. I, I think a couple weeks off, it looks like for him, based on uh, scheduling and whatnot. But again, you know, November rolls around. It's Augusta National. It's a place that he's played so well at before. Who knows? Maybe he'll find something before then or, or get re-inspired uh, upon uh, arrival at uh, that little tournament in November this year. So who knows what's going to happen with Jordan Spieth. But I, I agree with Jason insofar as him coming out and saying, listen, guys, I'm, I'm lost. I, I don't know what's happening, I think was a, was a very solid first step as well. The 120th U.S. Open rolls on at Wingfoot. Matthew Wolf leading the way at five under. Um, Jason and Adam, just really appreciate you guys joining us today. Thank you very much. Thanks, guys. No worries. Thanks, guys. That was Jason Sobel of the Action Network and Adam Stanley, golf writer and contributor to Sportsnet.ca, breaking down the 120th U.S. Open from Wingfoot Golf and Country Club in New York State. Izzy, did you learn anything? Yeah, man, I learned a lot. Uh, look, uh, I didn't, I didn't realize that Jordan Spieth had been that lost for a while. I, I remember when he was really kind of the guy. I know, I, I guess Rory McIlroy would have been earlier in in the last decade as being kind of the next one. And obviously, he's has won some some tournaments, won some majors, made a lot of money. And then Jordan Spieth sort of being the next guy after that. And you know, there's there's been that that interesting post Tiger generation. Uh, yeah. of guys that, that grew up in idolizing Tiger, really following the way that he plays and stuff like that. And uh, a lot of them have had some some incredible highs, but there have been some some lows. And while I, I can't sit here and say that Tiger Woods hasn't had lows in his life, um, they had a lot less to do with golf outside of probably the back injury and, and, and the knees mm -hmm. um, than some of these guys have, have encountered. And it just speaks to... Uh, the incredible run that Tiger Woods had for about a decade as just just an absolute unstoppable force in a sport that does not lend itself to that. And so uh, to hear about some of these guys uh, having those those ups and downs, is, is, is it is interesting. And um, yeah, uh, U.S. Open wraps up tomorrow, as you said, Alex, moving day today. It's also moving on time for us. We've got one more segment left and we want to dive into a couple of bigger topics uh, one of them is the future of Masai Ujiri with the Toronto Raptors. Uh, he had his end-of-season availability after the Raptors season ended last week. And some interesting nuggets there about a man and a team and an organization that has really established itself uh, as one of the top ones in basketball. And there are a lot of threads to pull there. So uh, we'll dive into that and, and a couple more things coming up next. You're on air with Israel Fair and Alex Blair on the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. Time for Sportsnet today. This is on air with Israel Fair and Alex Blair on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. Wrapping up this week's edition of On Air with Israel Fair and Alex Blair on Sportsnet today, Sportsnet 650. Thanks to Chris Johnston for joining us earlier with a breakdown 
in a preview of uh, tonight's Game 1 Stanley Cup Final between Tampa and Dallas, and also uh, the Golf Roundtable. Alex just concluded uh, with Adam Stanley and Jason Sobel uh, with uh, all the latest, and then the storylines out, the, out of the U.S. Open. Uh, we've done three segments here, Alex. Uh, where, where do you want to start here as, as we wrap up the show? Well, let's start with Arsenal. How's Arsenal doing? Not, not good. Not nope. good. No, it's one-one now, and West Ham is piling on the pressure. It has been, uh, it has been a rough, it's been a rough second half from from what I've seen. Okay, well, we're uh, we'll keep an eye on that as uh, as we wrap up the last half hour of the show here. Um, actually, one thing that I did think was really uh, was really interesting this week. Uh, we know the Raptors were eliminated by the Boston Celtics uh, just, I guess, about a week ago. Uh, Nick Nurse and Masai Ujiri had their sort of year-end Zoom as we're doing Zoom press conferences now. And uh, here was what Masai Ujiri had to say about his uh, contract extension. He's got one year left. Um, and here's when asked about uh, a contract extension with MLSE and the Toronto Raptors. Uh, no, I haven't had discussions. And uh, honestly, you know, like uh, coming out of this, uh, things are a little raw. I'm going to reflect a little bit and um, we will um, address it um, when, uh, when it's time to address it. It's not something I'm going to uh, uh, do in, in, in the media and publicly um, with, uh, with respect, you know, but I know I haven't had conversations. It's been, um, uh, it's, it's been an obligation for me to, 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 to um, take care of my leadership team, uh, obviously starting with Nick Nurse, I'm super excited about that. Um, and and uh, him, he is uh, the future um, is, is bright. Uh, and uh, but in, in terms of me, um, I, I haven't had those conversations, and uh, I'll wait till uh, till those happen in, in the future. So that's Raptors president Masai Ujiri talking this week. And I know it caught a few people off guard that he acknowledged there had not been any discussions with uh, Toronto, uh, with Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment at this point. Izzy, we've chatted a lot about the significant impact that Masai Ujiri has had with Raptor, with the Raptors and basketball in Canada in general, um, most notably on the court. But I think it's safe to say the perception of the Raptors globally and especially within the United States has been something he's he's had a huge impact on uh what do you think when you hear these comments from Masai that you know with a year left uh he has not even begun contract discussions the first thing that comes to mind is that this is a decision on his part that the Raptors organization Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment are actively looking to keep him aboard and it is it is not strictly a basketball uh, decision. There are a lot of layers here when it comes to Masai Ujiri. And as you said, Alex, it's, it's, it's an impact that goes beyond just putting together the best 12, 15 player roster and trying to win a championship. There's some of that at play, I think, with Masai Ujiri. Uh, I do think that there are some of those questions about, look, he won the championship in Toronto that even with over a year now, to reflect on it feels like it doesn't get enough of its due because we always talk about here in Canada, it's impossible for the NHL teams to win the Stanley cup. And while the blue Jays won their two championships in the early nineties, there was a lot of time without playoffs 
between 1993 and 2015 when they made it again. And yes, those teams had some success, but they did not win the championship either. And of all those groups, I think the Raptors were the team the least pegged to be able to win a championship because expansion franchise in the 90s, they had a lot of things that they had to um, to work through. You, you look at the history of the franchise. At first, it was, well, they can't even keep their own good players. Damon Stoudemire, Marcus Camby, Vince Carter, infamously, Chris Bosh, their franchise players all left. Then, okay, and a lot of this has to do with Masai Ujiri and some of the culture put in place since he took over. Uh, there is There was a bit more of a, of a thought of, okay, well, now DeMar DeRozan wants to stay. Kyle Lowry wants to stay. Even a lot of the depth players wanted to stay. You look back at a player like Amir Johnson, who was a big part of kind of trying to, to set that culture. And while he wasn't a part of, of the championship, it was as an expansion franchise, they needed to take some of these steps. And Masai Ujiri did that at every level. But now the question is, can they get another star player? Uh, and, and without getting a top pick, in, was it, whether it's free agency, whether it's the draft, they did it with Kawhi Leonard. They knew that that was most likely going to be a one-year proposition, but they took the risk and, by all accounts, their pitch was great. It was it was an elite pitch by a franchise that has established itself as being among the elite in the league. But there are certain factors that are outside of Masai Ujiri's control there. It is, still is Toronto as, as much as it's seen as a bit more of a world-class city than it was within the NBA circles anyway, five or 10 years ago. You look at the teams playing in the conference final right now, the Miami Heat. They are a similar, similar situation to Toronto. Expansion team in the late 80s took a while to get their feet under them, go out. They get Pat Riley, who was a legend of the game already before showing up in Miami, and they've set what they, they talk about in Miami all the time, the Heat culture. And it's, it's not going to be a foolproof plan to a championship, but they've been able to attract big stars and they've been able to get people to come and play in Miami. And they, they've built an organization off of that. And so I think when Masai Ujiri looks at the situation in Toronto, has he maxed out what he can do there? Perhaps. Uh, he's definitely a proud guy. I think he's very proud of what he's accomplished there. And then there's this, the, the factor beyond that. What does he want to accomplish in basketball beyond being the president. And and we've touched on this before. If there's a short list for future commissioner, I know that that this is something that you've talked about a bit. He's he's on that list because of what he has done as a front office executive, uh, his knowledge of basketball and the things that he stands for outside of basketball, whether it's um, raising awareness for some of the social and racial justice going on across the world and in North America, most specifically in the United States and Canada, uh, but also trying to grow the game in Africa. Uh, and, and having that that broad perspective while also being able to to do things in Toronto as he has in building um, a, a state-of-the-art practice facility that helps attract free agents and keep players the, to want to play in Toronto. So I, I think when you look at his situation overall, uh, these are a lot of the things that I am sure that he is thinking about uh, while wanting to take care of what he can, which is extending Nick Nurse. We were expecting an, uh, an extension for general manager Bobby Webster as well, uh, keeping those those pieces in place, and then he can really kind of have a set lay of the land before making his decision and probably having some pretty frank and open conversations with people around the league about what the future is for the Raptors and, and what his future might be. 
Yeah, I think this is a this is a huge story that in some ways is probably not getting as much attention. I think it'll be a story that will grow as the year goes. My gut feeling, uh, we've seen this with other executives when they're in situations like this where they deem uh, that, you know, so often organizations have the hammer, but there are situations. I remember talking to Brian Burke when he was sort of a lame duck GM in Anaheim, knowing that Toronto had the open role with the Maple Leafs. And they can't say anything, but they do have their eyes set on something else. And I don't know if Masai does, but as you touched on his Giants in Africa program that he does, um, you know, the Raptors were a model franchise during the NBA bubble with the Black Lives Matter um, sort of support that they offered, what they did for their players. And I think that for Masai, he may have his eye on something bigger. And that could be just with a bigger franchise that could have a bigger impact, whether that's, you know, a New York Knicks, whether that's a Los, Los Angeles Lakers. But just in my gut, I feel like it's going to be a bigger role, whether it's with the league office in general. And we talked about it. Um, Adam Silver isn't an old commissioner by any stretch. And by all accounts, he's done a really good job. But Masai could have, you know, whether it's maybe USA basketball, you know, he could have a bigger impact somewhere else. And I wonder if he's starting to look to, towards that. And, you know, the impact that that could have on the Raptors and basketball in Canada, that's something that dates back to the Grizzlies. You know, they had a, they had a terrible time attracting free agents. And I know during, you know, you and I were both living in Toronto during sort of the, just before Masai arrived in Toronto and then during sort of the rise. And, you know, for a long time, I remember at Sportsnet having conversations with coworkers you know, what was the hope for the Raptors? Because an NBA championship was not a possibility, in my opinion. You know, like, you know, get into the playoffs, but then you, at some point, whether you even made it through a round or, you know, maybe two, you were going to get your butt handed to you. And, you know, Masai was able to deal with the cards he was dealt better than anyone before him. But if you look at the, the DeMar DeRozan for Kawhi Leonard trade, again, they didn't attract Kawhi Leonard. That was a trade where Kawhi basically had to come unless he wanted to hold out. He won a championship in that one year, and that's a real credit to Masai putting that roster together, making an incredibly ballsy trade by giving up, you know, a heart and soul player like DeMar DeRozan. But at the end of that year, when they had the ability to extend Kawhi Leonard, what did Kawhi do? He left. And, you know, Masai is, I would say, the biggest advocate and, you know, uh, promotion marketing chip that the Raptors have to attract other players. And if he doesn't return, that, uh, you know, that could be a real challenge for the franchise. And it would be a big loss for for basketball in Canada. Certainly. Yeah. And it, it's, I can see it going a couple of ways. He could look at it as he did what he, he could do with, as you said, Alex, the cards that he was dealt. I think he approached it in a, he approached being the Raptors president, general manager in a, in a way that hadn't been done before. Actually, it's it's kind of funny. It just popped into my head because I, I rewatched Moneyball the other day uh, for the first time in, in a while. And I think it's a brilliant movie. And I mean, I'm a big fan of Michael Lewis, the author of the book. And, and I've read uh, a lot of the other books that he's written uh, as well. And I mean, The Big Short is also a movie that not sports related, but I, I find brilliant as well based on, on one of his reported books. And I look at the, the situation with Billy Bean and finally, yes, in the movie, they sort of amplify certain aspects of the philosophy, 
but he looked at being as uh, the, the the general manager, the president of a major league baseball team in a different way than anybody else. And so for the first 20 years of the Raptors, it was just a bunch of the same guys thinking that they knew basketball and, you know, we need to get certain types of players um, and, uh, you know, the, the chips will fall where they may. And I think Masai Ujiri, who had worked in Toronto prior uh, to being the general manager in Denver, got to understand some of the subtleties that might come with that job. Then when he ended up getting the big job, um, was able to, and, and this is a credit to ownership as well, Larry Tannenbaum and the ownership group there, they they bankrolled some of that. It's not cheap to build a state-of-the-art practice facility, but that's what that's the kind of thing that it would take to make teams un- understand like look this is to make players understand that this is a this is not a, a mickey mouse franchise this is a franchise that wants to win and for, you have to first you have to kind of prove it to yourself and show yourself that you can do it and i could see him saying look i did everything that i could um you know a player like Giannis is not necessarily going to come to Toronto and that, look, maybe I can make a broader impact to a lot of the things that you just laid out there, Alex. It's not simply I want to build another championship basketball team. It's what can I do for the continent where I'm from, Africa. Uh, We've seen what he's been able to do and, and the group around him has been able to do in terms of player development with professional players. Is there any way that can translate over to having some sort of player development program in Africa? Uh, so that's very near and dear to his heart. Uh, and he, he might, he might see some, some bigger goals beyond Toronto. And it'll be really interesting to see what Toronto and the, the Raptors organization, MLSE can maybe put together uh, a package and they've done a lot for him in that respect too right they they have they have absolutely supported programs like giants of africa and his his philanthropy in that respect uh, it's not like he's been out on an island there and so there's there's going to be some give and take there i think but look if if i'm looking at this as as a fan of the raptors of course i think i would want masai ujiri to stay and and be the the one still running this organization based on the results over the last 10 years or so but it's it's deeper than that, and that's where um, I think that this kind of cross section in sports right now, where there is there's going to be some pretty tough decisions. We haven't even touched on the fact that some of these contracts and stuff are going to be affected by the financial realities of the the post COVID nineteen world, and where does where does that affect the Raptors um, in in the way that they're trying to 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 keep this franchise in a place where they can contend. They're going to have to make some tough decisions on a player level and free agency, right? Fred Van Vliet's going to be a free agent. He's had two really nice years. He's had some huge clutch moments in the playoffs that are going to make some of these bad teams around the league willing to offer him $20, $25 million contracts, right? And it's like, okay, well, what kind of decisions can be made there? And I have full faith that Masai Ujiri is, is going to maintain, as long as he's in charge there, he's going to maintain the integrity that he has within that job, but that, that that doesn't mean that there aren't other things out there. And look, I I don't I don't know what that would look like to him, but I'm sure that there are going to be some rich and intelligent people that are going to make some pretty interesting pitches to him. Yeah, this this won't be a question of money because I know you know MLSE has some of the deepest pockets. I don't think they historically are not a cheap organization. I think they will offer Masai, you know they will match any offer that I think Masai gets. This is just a case of there may be a challenge out there that Masai would like to tackle and that he feels is a step forward in his career. 
uh, he also touched on, and it's, I, I thought it was a really interesting clip. Uh, I was in the car when I heard sort of, I was listening to the press conference live. He was asked by uh, Tim Bontemps at ESPN just about the release of the police cam footage from his altercation during last year's NBA finals in Oakland. And I think in this clip, you'll hear just sort of the rawness of everything that's going on right now uh, in the U.S., but I think sometimes we underestimate that it's going on as much as it is in Canada as well. Here's Masai Ujiri talking about how important it was for him to release that footage. You know, when uh, this video came out, I didn't, uh, I, I didn't sleep for a few days because um, when these things happen, you know, like uh, you, we, we saw the rush, we saw what everybody was writing. I mean, it, 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 you, you look at these things and you can't help but um, you question yourself, you know, and as time goes on, you begin to doubt yourself. And I doubted myself. I doubted myself that um, it, 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 what really happened there, you know. And um, uh, honestly, you, 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 I, I watch all these movies, I watch all these documentaries, and I look at these people and I'm thinking, you know, man, why don't you just say what happened? Why don't you just say exactly what happened? You know, like, and you'll be fine. You know, like, just do, say what happened. You know, like, it didn't happen that way. Say how it happened for you. And I began to question myself. I began to doubt myself. And the, the second part to this, Tim, is you, when, you, when you start thinking about this stuff, you start thinking, especially when you're confined in that space, you're alone in a room continuously, you have a lot of time to think, right? You have a lot of time to... I started to think, yeah, what if this had gone the total wrong way, you know? Um, there might have been situations where maybe I wouldn't have been that calm, you know, like maybe I'd have um, acted a little different, you know, and, and then it starts to mess with your mind, uh, you know. Um, but uh, for me, at the end of the day, I'm privileged, you know. At the end of the day, I have support. At the end of the day, uh, I'm able to, to face this square on. And I just started to think about the people that cannot do this, you know, like they cannot do what I can do. Um, there are things, times and things that happen where there are no cameras, there are no people that, that, that can see, there will be no video. How do, how, how do these people, you know, like get incarcerated, people get um, wrongfully accused, you know, that, that began to bug me as a person. And I really struggled in, in, the, in, in the bubble uh, uh, thinking about all of this. That's Raptors president Masai Ujiri speaking this week. Uh, he was asked about his thoughts and the role he could play during the social injustice um, conversations throughout the U.S. with his altercation from last year's NBA Finals with a police officer, uh, or I guess it was a sheriff's deputy in Oakland, California. I mean, it's a pretty raw clip. You can see how much that impacted him, Izzy. Um, and also you could see how, especially at the end of that clip, he talked about he has the financial resources to be able to fight this. He has the public profile to give this some attention. Yeah. And in a lot of cases, that isn't the case for a lot of people throughout the U.S. and throughout Canada. Um, and I just wonder when I listen to that, he, he, he touched on a couple times how much time he had to think 
in the bubble in Orlando. And you can see how much this issue in particular has uh, meant to him and impacted him and those close to him. Yeah. And uh, I just wonder if there's some opportunity out there that may that may appeal to him as a next opportunity where he can have a larger impact. Um, I would I would think that it would be somehow involved in growing the game of basketball, um, but we'll we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, yeah. I think I think you're right, Alex. And it is well maybe you know it's it's a public incident and i'm sure that there are a lot of private incidents that we could probably point to and say look this is why Masai Ujiri thinks the way that he does but we have the public incident uh at our disposal and it was look i i can't relate to that experience but when i i i try to look at it through a certain lens you see a man who has climbed his way through professional basketball to the top of that profession he built the team that won the championship right you you sometimes there is that thought out there that look once once you achieve something and this is again i'm i'm a, I'm a white dude so i i don't i can't speak for it directly but i'm sh- i i would assume that there is some feeling of him you know or, or been told or, or he had this idea that he he could achieve something and at some point maybe it's you know being a black man, being an African man would not be what defines him. And here he is in that moment, achieving that top of the mountaintop kind of stuff and um, having that completely wiped out by an incident that has now that we, we have seen some of the footage uh, was was completely out of bounds by the by the the, the enforcement officer. Right. Like you, there's the, the very clearly in the video, he is pulling out his credential. Right. Like it, it was it was completely out of bounds. And you can see that with that time to think that he might look at that and sort of go, can I make a bigger change than just building a another championship basketball team in Toronto? Yeah. And, uh, time will tell it, it will be a big story. And, uh, you know, he's had such an impact. Uh, he's such a fascinating guy, um, such a compelling speaker. And, uh, anyway, we'll watch with interest as that, uh, carries on as we wrap up another week here. Uh, I know next week we're going to start to dive into the NHL draft and draft prospects. We'll have a couple weeks before the draft. So what we'll try and do for, uh, a segment on each of the next two weeks is to have somebody on to break down some of the prospects and what some of the needs are with the teams. And uh, really looking forward to doing that uh, with you and and hopefully a couple of your colleagues from The Athletic. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We, we will be you know keeping an eye on the Canucks rumors, the draft stuff as well. That's it for us this week. Thanks to Mike McLeod running the board back in Mission Control. On air with Israel Fair and Alex Blair, we'll be back next week. You're listening to Sportsnet 650.